Welcome to Pre-K Spot Talks. I am Melissa, your host and the founder of Pre-K Spot, the spot for early childhood educators to open up their teaching. I am your guide down the open-ended child-led teaching path, and together we will explore strategies and ideas so that you may open up your teaching to less stress, more engagement, and an overall joyful child-led classroom. I have Amber here from the Cream City Teacher. Uh, we've connected on Instagram, and we're both public school uh, pre-K or 4K teachers. She's here. We're going to talk about a little bit about her play journey and see how it's been for her. So, Amber, tell me a little bit about you, like who you are, your position in early childhood, maybe a few things about you that, you know, fun little fact. Hey, Melissa. I have been looking forward to this chat about play, so thank you for having me. Like you said, my name is Amber Unger. And I am a 4K teacher in the Milwaukee area. This is my 15th year of teaching. So I have experience in 4K, which is four-year-old kindergarten, as well as 5K, just traditional kindergarten. And I also have taught first grade. And there were a couple of years in there where I was an ESL teacher working with English language learners. So know that mostly I've worked with the little ones. And currently, this is my sixth year in a full-day 4K classroom. So that's four-year-old kindergarten. I know other places, they call it pre-K or TK. Um, There are a lot of different names, but in our area, we call it 4K. And we are in a play-based program of a public school in the Milwaukee area. So that is where I live and I work. And just a little fun fact about me is that I practically live in coffee shops. Uh, We have one coffee shop in particular near my school that I call my home away from home Mm -hmm. because we go there. My son and I go there pretty much every single day after school. And that's where I work on my business. So yeah, I'm a big time foodie and I spend a lot of times in the coffee shop. I love a good coffee shop. I mean, I'm on like a two cup of coffee day drinker myself so (laughs) I drink coffee constantly it's not great yeah it's like coffee or seltzer for me literally pretty much nothing else I didn't realize you did ESL which is amazing I might actually tap into some of that knowledge for you because we're basically working in dual language classrooms right now even though we're not dual language and I speak no other language besides English but anyway tell me because I worked in kindergarten a little bit too only one year and it was like the worst thing of my entire life cried every single day hated it I want to know what you think about the difference between 4K and 5K, at least in your area? Oh my goodness. So it's funny because when I first started thinking about this 4K position that I'm currently in, my thought process was, oh, this will be great. This is perfect. I've taught 5K before. I'll take that experience and apply it in 4K. And I I had all the confidence in the world. And then I quickly realized that 4K and 5K are two different worlds. Yeah, There are a lot of similarities and overlap, but the kiddos have different needs and abilities. So I found it to be dramatically different. Mm -hmm. So that was a big learning curve for me. Also, when I taught kindergarten, that was in a different school district. Okay. So that was a very traditional kindergarten classroom, whereas where I am now, 
I teach 4K, but even the kindergarten teachers in my school district feel empowered to use play as a method of instruction in, in my current school district. So yes, for 4K in my current school district and 5K in my previous school district, so different. We are a play-based school. We use play all the way through, you know, pre-K to fifth grade. It looks a little different as it goes up, obviously. So I love the, your use of the word empowered. Our kindergarten teachers are empowered through play too, but they just have so many different demands. And like you said, the age difference between a three to four-year-old versus a four to five-year-old or an older five-year-old, so different, right? So different. Right. I give my, our 4K teachers at our school, excuse me, I give our 5K teachers at my school so many props because Mm -hmm. they know the research behind play as a method of instruction and they have so much on their plates, yet they are doing it. Like I know that they have play in their classroom, but I also know that they're expected to follow this curriculum and, you know, teach, you know, to these standards. So I'm always an awe of the two of them because they're, they're just phenomenal. And honestly, sometimes I look at them and go, sheesh, I don't know if I could do that. Like looking at the demands that they have and the fact that they still incorporate play into their classroom, they just impress me. I mean, I could not have said it better myself. I think the kindergarten teachers at my school work so hard and are, it's the hardest grade to teach, I think. I mean, I know I as kids get older, they get more, you know, they talk back and stuff like that. And people don't like that. But I just feel like kindergarten, like you said, is just this balance of like, they're little, it's play, but there's benchmarks and there's standards. I do not envy and assessments. I didn't realize at your school that you were play-based up through fifth grade. Yeah, we definitely try. My principal very much believes in it, believes in it, which is why I am able to do what I'm able to do. Like I said, it looks a little different, but it's empowering. They use it. We use work time a lot. So it might not always be play, but it's at least child focused and child choice and and things like that. Like a lot of the same sort of beliefs that play brings in. So Amazing. yeah, it is. It's I love really, that. Really awesome. So since we're talking about programs, you know, describe a little bit more about what your program looks like. Sure. So in our school district, all of our 4K classrooms are play-based. So when I was hired, it was under the expectation that it would be a play-based classroom. So there are about 10 4K classrooms in our district. We're, you know, somewhat small-ish, what I would consider a small school district. And all of the 4K classrooms are play-based. And I was hired the year that our 4K classrooms not only went from traditional to play-based, but also that was when the 4K program was switching from half day to full day. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was a really big change at that time. So I was really excited to jump into the process. However, I did find out after I was into it a few, like a few months into it, that the teachers, like the more veteran teachers that who had already been there, had been studying play-based learning for quite some time before they actually implemented the program, which is great, you know, good on them. But that put me in a position where I felt a little behind. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, everyone was very supportive, but they were also learning as well. And I was learning. I just felt like five steps behind everyone um, because I was hired about a month and a half before the kids started. 
Yeah. So I learned that they had been doing classroom visits at other schools and they had visions in their head of what they wanted their classrooms to look like. And for me, I was starting at ground zero. I walked into our classroom for the first time and it was like M.T. There were tables, there were chairs, even the sink that was supposed to be there was like the piping was completely exposed. There was not even a a sink. No, we didn't even have a sink. Um, Which is so necessary. Yes. And there was a big like teacher desk, which of course I didn't even want. So I asked the custodian to take that out. So I was, I had like very, very little. Um, Now I had a wonderful principal at the time who was extremely supportive. And I felt like anything I asked for, he would do his best to order or get for us. But I was also, that was my first year in that district. So I was sort of hesitant, you know, playing that little, doing that little dance where it's like, well, I I want to ask for things, but I don't want to ask for too much. The first year was a little rough getting started, but I did a lot of reading and lots of blog posts, listening to a lot of podcasts, and I started to figure things out. I felt like I was finally starting to catch up with everyone else. So did you always want to be a teacher? Like, did you undergrad or like grad school, like always do teaching? And so were you traditionally taught? This is a really fun question, Melissa. So no, I was not traditionally, like I was not taught about Mm -hmm. play-based learning. So if you want to go way back when I did my undergrad work, I thought I was going to be a high school Spanish teacher. Uh When I was a senior in high school, my dad was like, Amber, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. I really like the Spanish language. Maybe I want to do something like that. And he's like, well, you know, teachers and police officers in our state have great benefits. You probably, you'd make a great teacher. And I I said, you know, that's, that's a good idea, dad. So I went to school to be a high school Spanish teacher. And I did my student teaching in a high school and a couple of middle schools. And I was just like kind of lukewarm about it. I wasn't very passionate about it. Mm-hmm. And I went to a job fair. I stumbled across a position for a bilingual kindergarten position. And okay. I thought, well, I didn't really intend to use my bilingual license right now. Um, Because that's different than, you know, my Spanish license. But I thought, you know, kindergarten might be fun. So I interviewed, I I got the position, and I finally fell in love with little kids. Yeah, like I was so lukewarm about high school and middle school. But once I started teaching kindergarten, I was like, oh, this is Mm -hmm. like, this is where I'm meant to be. This, This is what excites me. But even then, it was, wasn't was a play-based program. It was very traditional kindergarten classroom. So going back to your original question, no, absolutely no. I was not taught about play-based instruction when I was in college. So I actually then went back to school. Quick little story. During my first year of teaching, my wonderful principal at the time called me in her office and she's like, hey, Amber. I just got off the phone with the Department of Public Instruction, and they were telling me that you actually don't have the proper license to teach this bilingual kindergarten position. And I was like, what? Like, what does that even mean? I needed my bilingual license and my regular elementary license, uh-huh. but I only have my bilingual license at the time. Oh, so it didn't like extend down because it would just only covered one mm-hmm. Well, for that yeah. particular position, you needed both licenses. Uh-huh. You, you need bilingual and elementary. 
So anyway, my first year of teaching, I went on an emergency license and Mm -hmm. then I went back to school and that's when I acquired my elementary degree. But even then, when I was going through that intensive one-year program to get my elementary license, play-based learning was not part of that. Mm -hmm. So for me, a lot of my learning has come from reading, 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 Mm -hmm. immersing myself into, into this method of instruction and listening to all the podcasts and reading all the blog posts collaborating with my peers and just being open to trying new things because yes, I did not, I did not have any formal instruction on play-based learning. Yeah. So you had to learn it all stuff. I'm going to say, I see one of my like favorite books in the background there. Oh, <laughs> um, you the purposeful play. play. Yes. So that's so interesting. I would start reading and learning about play and I would try things out, but like there's this little voice in the back of my head that was like, but this isn't the way you're supposed to do it. Because it was so anything, like, right? That traditional way of teaching was so ingrained in my brain. It's it's weird. It's challenging to undo that. Well, I feel like that is the work, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the work to sort of. I don't love to use unlearn because having. I'm so glad I had that base. I had a good solid teaching base to then jump off of and kind of just like change my philosophy. So mm-hmm. I learned how to teach, but then I just shifted my philosophy in the way I thought about teaching. But I feel like that's the work for play-based teachers or teachers who want to do more play. It's just really about letting go of everything that's so ingrained in you, like taught in these teacher prep programs, expected by society, taught by your admins, Mm -hmm. and like learning to find that balance of like pushing back against it, but like without being too, I don't know what the the right word is, too pushy, right? Like you need a job. I need my job. Yeah. I remember my very first position, that bilingual kindergarten position. There was a little like kitchen set area in the classroom that was there from the teacher before me. And this is so embarrassing to admit. I wish I could go back and like talk to first year teacher Amber. But I remember the kids asking me like, when do we get to play? When is playtime? And I always kind of just like push them off like, oh, later, that comes later. And I think I always had the intention in my brain, like, oh, if we have 10 minutes at the end of the day or whatever, then they Mm -hmm. can play. But that 10 minutes never came. But I never really made time for it. I never prioritized it because it was so ingrained in my brain, like the way a classroom, quote, should look. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, darn it. If I let these kids play, what if my principal walks in? What Mm -hmm. is she going to think? I'm going to get in trouble. I'm a first year teacher. I can't get in trouble my first year for letting these kids play. And that was, I look back on that. I think, man, what a shame. What a shame that these kids were asking to play and I denied them. It kind of hurts a little, right? It does. I wish I I could go back and talk to myself. Same, same, similar things. I'm like, oh, Mm -hmm. I definitely used to be like, oh, 10 minutes free play. But even then I'm like the free play we're offering was like, you only get to pick from this and this. Right. How is that free play? Right. We can probably look back on all the things, but that's how we learn. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that kind of goes along with my next question. You may have answered it already, but is there anything else that you feel like you might have had to overcome or maybe some obstacles that were really difficult for you to kind of shift to this play-based pedagogy? Lots of obstacles for sure. For me, 
a big obstacle that I had to overcome was my mindset. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, I was doing so much reading. I still do. I read so much and I listen to so much and I take it all in and I really immerse myself in it. I'm kind of a nerd like that. But then I'm at the same time having to constantly battle my mindset of like what a play-based classroom quote should look like. You know, I might be looking at somebody's profile on Instagram and they're very nature-based and they're out in the woods and they're spending most of their time outdoors. And then all of a sudden I get this guilt of like, well, I'm not doing enough for my students because I'm not getting them outside enough or I'll see another classroom where it's just like, I can think of so many teachers where they have loose parts as a key part of their, like such a foundational part of their play-based classroom. And I think, well, I have loose parts, but I don't have enough. I'm not doing enough. I have to get more. So I, I still fall into that trap sometimes and better now, but I'm, I still do have to work on my mindset around what I am doing is enough mm-hmm. and play does not need to look the same in every classroom right. and in every setting. That's such a key um, phrase. I feel like everybody needs to hear that because I feel like sometimes I don't want to sound like I'm ever shooting people or like mm-hmm. judging people with, you know, just sharing what I do, but it should look different. Your kids Absolutely. are different from my kids. Milwaukee is different from New York City. Milwaukee is different from the middle of Minnesota, right? Right. And it's so interesting because the more logical voice in my head will say, Amber, you never compared yourself when you were a first grade teacher. You were never comparing yourself to other first grade teachers and thinking, well, I'm not doing enough. Why is it Mm -hmm. that once I put this play-based teacher hat on that all of a sudden I feel like I'm not enough, that I'm not doing enough? I don't know. I don't know what it is. But I I don't think I'm alone in it. I think a lot of play-based teachers feel that way. But that's definitely an obstacle that I've had to overcome and can and still work on to this day. But something that I tell myself and I tell other teachers is just start where you are and grow from there. Mm-hmm. Like literally, you just have to do one small change at a time. Even if you have admin that is not supportive, or you have parents that are questioning your approach to instruction, or you have an educational assistant who's wondering what on earth you're doing, you can still, despite all those challenges, you you could still take one little baby step at a time. And so that could look like just replacing a worksheet when your students arrive with some open-ended materials that you already have in your classroom, like Legos or Lincoln Logs or whatever, loose or parts. Or you loose parts you have. You don't have right, them, exactly. Right? And if that is all you do right now, awesome. That's great. Mm-hmm. But it's not until you take that first baby step that you start to realize what's possible. And then you start putting another foot forward and another foot forward. And you're like, well, if I was doing that, I could try this now. And then before you know it, like six years later, you're like, wow. I've I've come so far. Just going back to your original question, I think one of my biggest obstacles is constantly dealing with the mindset of feeling like you're not enough and just staying on your own path, staying Absolutely. on your own journey. I feel like that's very it's very a te- it's a very teacher feeling. Like I know you said you didn't necessarily do it when you were teaching like first grade and more traditional style, but I know many teachers that teach in whatever way they teach that have very very similar feelings 
especially more so with social media, right? Like, I feel like everybody's life in general, they're like, oh, wait, but my life doesn't look like that. So I think what you said was amazing because that's, we just have to remember we're doing what we can do and we're doing what's right for our kids. That's always my thing. Go back to like, are you doing what's right for your kids? Right. Right. And the Lisa Murphy questions, why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? And what are you doing? Yes. Speaking of Lisa Murphy, she said something in her book that sticks with me. And I remind myself all the time. She said, what can you say yes to? What part of this can you say yes to? So when I'm starting to feel overwhelmed and I'm starting to feel like what I'm doing is not enough. So for example, if I feel like, well, I'm not getting my students outside enough. Oh my gosh, it's already October and we haven't even gotten to our outdoor classroom yet. When I'm starting to go down that black hole, I stop myself and I say, what small part of this can I say yes to? So maybe we're not going to get to the outdoor classroom because our schedule isn't working out this month. Maybe instead, we're just going to bring this activity outdoors. Um, This activity we were going to do inside, we'll do it outside. And so that's looking at a situation and saying, what, what part of this can I say yes to? I just, I, I try to keep Lisa Murphy's voice in my head mm-hmm. when I'm, when that imposter syndrome is starting to to sneak in. And I think everybody should read her book. It's so, it's so quick. It's so easy to read. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely have it on my list for the book club. Cause I'm like, it, you have, everybody has to read Lisa Murphy. Well, and it's really practical too. She has like, what is it? The seven things that a teacher should do every day. And it's like move, play, yeah. sing, read. And teachers are probably doing, already doing the majority of what she's talking about, but reading it makes you realize where you can be a little bit more intentional. Well, like you said, where you can, yeah, a little bit more intentional or like, how much more can you say yes to? Like, can yes. you say just a little bit. It's funny that you say that maybe it's a total like being like a New Yorker, right? Like, I think the negative, I'm always asking myself, like, why am I saying no to this? Mm. So instead of like, like, what can I say yes to? I'm always like, well, why am I saying no? Like, sometimes I'll say no to somebody and I'll be like, wait a second, like, hold off. Like, why am I saying no? Am I saying no because I have a problem with it? Or like, am I saying no because admin has a problem with it? Or am I saying no because of, you know, the kids are really going to like hurt themselves or something. And sometimes I pull myself back. I'm like, why did I say no to that? Never mind. Go for it. Like, go take those 15 balls and chuck them at the wall. Whatever. (laughs) I'm so glad you bring this up because I too have ask that question. Mm -hmm. I'll automatically say no to a student and then I'll stop and I'll go back to that student and I'll be like, you know what? Let's talk about this. Mm -hmm. And that has been a process as well. Because Mm -hmm. when I first started, when I first started teaching in general, when I first started as a 4K teacher, I would have never done that. Like, I don't know if it's a pride thing or what, but I would have never gone back to a student and said, you know what? I was wrong. Let's let's talk about this instead. But now I will. If I catch myself saying no to a student, I typically will stop and think, why did I just say no? Mm-hmm. Why did I instinctively deny that student of that experience or that material or whatever that idea? And I and now I will go back and I'll I'll kneel down with the student and I'll say, well, let's talk about this. And typically when I get more information from the child and I can kind of call my my instant reactions down, my instant like feelings down, mm-hmm. and I just take a moment myself, more often than not, it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like if it's like a risky situation, I will talk to the student about 
what could happen and see if he or she is comfortable with that risky play and what could potentially happen. And um, then we all feel better about it. Like the child is happy. I feel more comfortable. I think the other adults in the classroom feel more comfortable because they saw that I had the conversation with the child. Um, So yeah, I think it takes time, but it is a process to reflect enough and be able to say like, why did I, why did I say no to that? Definitely. One of the best pieces of advice I ever received from a professor was in grad school. He was like the chillest person ever. Like really, I feel like I got some of my chill from him too. Cause he was one of those teachers that was literally like, are the children hurting themselves? Like, no. Okay. Like, okay. But his best piece of advice was almost along the same lines of like, that's where I got the, why am I saying no from? He was like, something happened in the class. I forget now because that's such a long time ago now, 10 years now. And he was like, was that your problem or was that the child's problem? And he was like, and then we like ended up having this like whole conversation about basically how so many times it's usually the adult's problem and it's not the child's problem. And that just stuck with me and like sticks with me all the time because it's just, it just made so much sense. I was like, oh, I was like scared the kid was going to get hurt. And I was like, but I was scared. And it just, it like literally changed the way I thought about kids and my teaching that one five minute moment. And I was, I couldn't. So now I try to tell everybody that I'm like, just, is it your problem or is it a kid's problem? That's such a good reflective question that he gave you and obviously stuck with you. For sure. Now that we've heard a little bit about your journey, I want to know what is your absolute favorite thing about play? Why do you love play so much? Why do you feel passionate about it? There are so many reasons to love play. But for me, probably one of the biggest reasons I love play is because play is its own form of, quote, classroom management. Mm -hmm. A lot of the issues that I experienced in the past could have been better managed if I would have used play more in the classroom. I'm talking before I was a 4K teacher, before I was in a play-based program, a lot of the challenges that I was seeing in the classroom in kindergarten and first grade could have been managed if play was a part of our classroom. And even when I talk to teachers on email and Instagram, I feel like when they bring challenges to me or they ask questions, a lot of their questions can be answered by by play, by using play. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the huge reasons why I love play. On top of that, play is backed by over 50 years of research. So I feel super confident that I am doing good by my students and I am using a developmentally appropriate approach to learning. And I know this because it's backed by over 50 years of research. This isn't just like, oh, play is fun. No, this is research-based instruction. So just the nerd in me loves that, that I know that play is best for my kids because it's backed by research. On top of that, I love play because it focuses on the whole child. I am so thankful to work in a school district where they pay attention to the research and they pay attention to what's developmentally appropriate for children and not just reading and writing and math. Mm -hmm. They they real my school district really talks the talk and walks the walk in terms of focusing on the the child's entire well-being and play is a way to really support kids and say their social emotional skills 
So not only does play support kids through social emotional learning, but on top of that, play hits multiple goals and standards. So through play, kids are not just practicing, you counting or making patterns. Kids are not just engaging with books through play, but on top of that, they're building oral language skills and and building fine motor muscles and practicing problem solving with their peers and so much more. So play is a way to teach and hit so many different goals and standards. And honestly, I feel like I've never known my students better Uh than the last six years when we've been in a play-based program. I feel like I know my 4K friends so well, and I know their families, and I know their interests and their curiosities, and I know what makes them tick, and I know their areas of improvement and their strengths. I know how to support them. I'm very confident I wouldn't know them that well if we did not use play in our classroom. And I know that because I don't feel like I knew my previous students as well as I know my current students. Besides that, I just love play. It's so fun and joyful and it makes my job fun. Let's be real. Being a play-based teacher is just darn right fun. Mm -hmm. And there's so much to learn. And as an Enneagram one, you know, the the improver, I'm always looking to do better and, and improve myself. There's always room for growth with play. Um, so that's really exciting. So selfishly, like I love play because I love learning and it's just fun and joyful. And I love going to work every day. Oh God, you just said so many good things. <laughs> so many good things. I mean, the first thing that I wrote down was I I fully agree with you that Play is basically the solution to everything. Obviously, you have to apply it in different ways to different situations. Play can be an answer to everything. You just said it's joyful. It's fun. It automatically and naturally builds relationships and connection. And there's space for that in play. I feel like with the traditional teaching, there's not a lot of space for that. While they preach that, there's not so much space for it where play just creates space for a lot of human things, right? I feel very human when I'm with my kids in the classroom, not so much a leader necessarily, or like, you know, somebody who's there to like direct a show. I'm just there to like be human with my kids and play. I feel like really, really allows that. And it's, I love it. That's yeah. So many amazing things. Absolutely. I've never been happier in a position before. Yeah. Right. Same. Totally same feeling. I know this can sometimes be a debate, and I want to kind of want to know how you feel about it. Uh, I hear you calling your pre-K kids friends. Mm. I do the same. I'm all about it because I am for being their friend. I just want to know your thoughts on it because I know some people think that that's something that you shouldn't do. Interesting. This is a really interesting question. Have you seen I, a debate about this before at all ever, or has it never really come up for you? I... I Okay, first of all, I have the worst memory ever, but I can't recall a time when it's ever come up. Mm-hmm. Maybe I've seen something on Instagram once or twice, but I just kind of scrolled past it and didn't give it much thought. But I just, I think it comes down to that whole mindset of what something should look like or uh-huh. should not look like. Like, I just don't buy into that. I talk about all the time how, especially with play-based learning, people can be so radical, like radically on one end Mm -hmm. um, or radically on the other. 
And I oftentimes say I'm radically in the middle. And so I don't get caught up in like what should or should not be. Like I just do what works for us. And I I often say in our classroom, if it's not a problem, don't make it a problem. I so mm-hmm. with the two other amazing adults that I have the privilege to work with, sometimes they'll come to me with a question. And more often than not, I'll say, well, if it's not a problem, let's not make it a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so far, the whole 4K friends thing hasn't been a problem, but I guess if it ever came up, I would address it then. Have you ever gotten into, you've gotten into it? I mean, I've never had anybody directly say that I shouldn't call my kids friends. It's never been like a problem with like parents or admin or like anybody like, like that. I've just seen a lot of debate in like some groups and I've had some people ask me why I do it. And some people don't believe that adults and kids, especially teachers and kids, should be friends or should be considered friends. And using that word obviously promotes that thinking, right? I think the opposite. I think you, we should be friends with our kids. Obviously, I mean, that's that's most of it. Most of it is just like people like, well, I'm not friends with my kids, so I'm not going to call them friends. I'm like, okay, fine. I mean, if you don't believe in that, then don't use the word. But I know that it seems like just from groups and things like that, that it does seem to be something that might be falling out of something that people are not doing anymore. Because I know for a little while, once it shifted from boys and girls, it shifted friends and things like that. And it seems like it might be shifting out, maybe. I don't know. I mean, I'm not everywhere. <laughs> but I just kind of love that I hear you saying it all the time. So clearly, it's like a thing that you do. And I'm. it's like exactly the same for me. Like I call everybody my friends. Like, all right, my friends, come, come. Absolutely. I say 4K friends all the time. And honestly, if we... If we're saying that building a community in our classroom is a priority, then the language that we use matters. So if I'm saying students, I I don't know what people would say alternatively, students, boys and girls, that just seems so formal to me. So when I say 4K friends, it feels more, I, I don't know, it's just language that I'm comfortable with and I feel like it builds a better sense of community. Yeah, I like that too. I mean, and we're very informal in our room. Like we all go by first names and it's not Miss Melissa, it's Melissa. My okay. kids call me Melissa. We call our principal by her first name. We're on a first name basis across the school. And so it just kind of matches our very casual, I guess, philosophy or culture. Well, I've been seeing 4K friends for six years now <laughs> and we haven't had any problems. And I have never had a student that's like, you're not my teacher. You're my friend. So I don't yeah, have to it's listen never to you. <laughs> Has a bit of problem. So now I want to know what is your favorite loose part, or it doesn't necessarily have to be a loose part, like your favorite play material, the one you can't live without. This is so hard to answer because I have a lot of favorite play materials, but I gave this question some good thought. And I think if I had to choose one, I would say our kid blocks. And when I say kid blocks, I mean, They are little Jenga blocks from the game Jenga Mm -hmm. with my students' photos on them. Mm -hmm. So every year I have them, you know, stand up. I take a full body picture and I have them put their arms down. And then we print those little pictures in color and my colleagues cut the pictures out. And then we use packing tape to attach the photos to the Jenga blocks. And my 4K friends love those. They honestly, I should make multiple sets of them because they sort of argue over them and uh-huh. fight over them. Everybody wants to use them. They want to use them in the construction center. They want to use them in the sensory table. They want to use them in the imagination center, in the theater. 
So maybe this year I'll make multiple sets, but I think that's probably my favorite play material because the kids love it so much. So do they use it like in place of people basically? Or well, like we, one of the uses? We still do have li- like little community worker uh-huh. people in the construction center, but yes, that, that would be like one way they could play with it in place of like the little one people. What else do they do with it? Tell me like one or two things that they do with it. I remember last year we had a winter themed sensory table with fake snow in it. And we had like a snow plow in there and icicles and things like that. And they were just putting on like snow fight scenes using their little kid blocks. Uh-huh. So, and then in the construction center, they use them all the time. That's probably where the kid blocks get used the most is in the construction mm-hmm. center. Because, you know, they'll build like a whole city out of blocks and then they want to play with their little kid blocks in the city. So, yeah, they use them all the time. I'm totally stealing that idea because I've seen people put kids pictures on blocks before. And like, I usually just have like little magnets and like kids take their pictures everywhere. And I don't know why I've never put them on blocks. I guess I just never really thought about it or just like never went through the trouble of doing it. But I like the idea of the Jenga block size, like Mm -hmm. being a little bit smaller. So it feels more like a person, right? Like the bigger unit block, which felt like, I guess to me always felt like just a block with your picture on it. Right. And then you're not using up the blocks that you have in your blocks area or your construction center. And chances are, I'm guessing if you put a message out on Facebook, somebody has like a Jenga game in their house that they're not using that they would just donate to your classroom. Or they've lost half the pieces too, so they can't use it anymore. Exactly. I'm totally, I think everybody should do this now. I'm going to go do it. I'm going to put Jenga, (laughs) I'm going to go find some, have Jenga blocks. And I'm going to put my kids' pictures on it. Yay, um, I, I hope they love it. Pictures for everything. I mean, we make puzzles out of them. We make name writing out of them. We make just documentation, like everything with them. Like why we never put them on a little block like that. It's an amazing idea. The puzzle um, idea. I've never done that before, but I've heard of it. And so it's on my, to, my to-do list of things to do is to print their pictures in color and on white cardstock so we can make little puzzles. So Yeah. And there's a couple different ways you can do it too. I've done it with just three strips. So basically upper body, middle body, lower body. Oh. And then uh, they just like kind of put them together and they absolutely love like putting somebody else's legs on somebody else's body with somebody else's head. But then we've also made just like cut out puzzles with it too. I love that idea. Like I was going to do a jigsaw type puzzle, but I'd like your idea better. Oh, it's easier. <laughs> What's that? It's easier too. It's to just, easier. Like, and apart. how much fun is it to put my friend's head on my uh-huh. body and my other friend's legs? Like that's adorable. Okay. And now I'm taking that idea. I'm taking my your- only tip for you in that is to just like, when you take the picture to have something kind of on the wall to sort of, I mean, and of course kids are different sizes. But, like, make sure you're always taking them from, like, the same spot. Like, shoulders up, shoulders to, like, waist, and then, like, waist down or, like, knees down or something. So then you're getting at least similar looks, right? It's never yeah, going to be because you're taking the pictures yourself. Just, like, to think about that, okay. right? Tell me now. I loved hearing everything that you've shared with us today. I am realizing now how much more we have in common. So many similar experiences and thoughts and processes. And I just like absolutely love that. So just tell us where people can find you and anything, something you'd just like to share with everybody. Sure. So people can find me at my website. It's creamcityteacher.com. On there, I do have a free play observation documentation template 
that teachers can use to get started if they're interested in documenting their students' play. There are so many ways to document play and not every approach not, is going to work for every teacher. Some people like documenting just, you know, in a blank journal. Um, some people like documenting through photos. Teachers have different approaches. But for me, when I first started with documentation, I was pretty clueless as to what I was doing. I really relied on templates. So I wanted to offer that to other play-based educators who are just getting started with observing during play and documenting that play. So that is free on my website. And I also do a weekly email every Wednesday. It's called the Play Workshop Provocation. And you can sign up for that on my website as well. And I also have some other things available on my website, like my play, I have like play-based shirts. And then I'm also on Teachers Pay Teachers as the Cream City Teacher and on Instagram just as Cream City Teacher. And my email is amber at creamcityteacher.com. So any of those ways people could reach out and I'd love to chat about play. Just tell me what Cream City means because I did not know until you told me. And not that I thought it was a weird name. I was just kind of like, I know there has to be meaning behind this name. Like, what is that? Tell me what the Cream City is. Oh, thanks for asking, Melissa. I love this question. So it, it the name Cream City Teacher is very personal and you know, like sentimental to me. I live in the Milwaukee area, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I'm so proud of Milwaukee. Like I love my city. And so Milwaukee is commonly known as the Cream City because of all the Cream City brick that's used on the historical churches and buildings in downtown Milwaukee. Well, just everywhere in Milwaukee, the greater Milwaukee area. So the name, the Cream City teacher comes from the nickname for Milwaukee, the Cream City. That's because of all our beautiful brick on our buildings. I love that because like I said, I did not know that even though my parents live not too far from Milwaukee, we've spent a lot of time in Milwaukee. And I had no idea, like no idea. Growing up on the East Coast, that was never a thing for me. So just wanted to like put Milwaukee on the map a little bit. Oh, right? uh, thank you. Milwaukee <laughs> has a lot of different names. Cream City just happens to be one of them. I love it. So thank you, Amber, so much for being here. I loved getting to know you even more. And thank you for sharing your play journey. Absolutely. It was my pleasure, Melissa. Thanks for having me.